Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. My guest today is Dana Golden, and she's going to talk about living on the other side of addiction, living with a partner that is struggling with addiction, and how she found her own freedom through that, and how that story developed from early in her life all the way up into that moment where she knew she needed to let go of the relationship she was currently in. And how, even in a twist, that relationship re-engaged itself as a mutual partnership to help others who are struggling with addiction and the impact of addiction. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It was great to interview Dana. And you can tell that she is a powerful force in manifesting your destiny and owning your own destiny and making that destiny happen. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure, and I really appreciate it. And I do read the reviews, and it means a lot to me to see the work that I'm doing is helping people struggling with addiction and helping people help their loved ones. So that means a lot to me, and I really do appreciate it for all the people that have taken the time to do that. So thank you. And don't forget, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest today is Dana Golden, and she's going to talk about being on the other side of addiction and sharing her own story about all of that and being impacted by that. And Dana, why don't you just jump in and introduce yourself? Awesome. Thanks, Dwayne. Great to be here with you. Thank you for the opportunity to be helpful to your listeners, if I can. So... You know, it's such a long, convoluted story, but I will say that I grew up in a in a home where my dad was an addict. He was more a process addiction guy, so gambling, right. sex, right? right? Still has the same effect when you're growing up. Doesn't matter if it's yep. alcohol, drugs, yeah, process. Okay, so so from there, I learned some very maladaptive behaviors to cope in my family of origin. And when I went out into the world on my own, I carried that into other relationships. And so you could line me up with a hundred dudes and I'd pick the one that has an addiction every time. 
You're and so them. I didn't. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm attracted to that because I can, I'm a fixer. I'm a caretaker. I can fix that problem. Right. That's what I did in my home. So right. I was going to yeah, repeat that in all my relationships. And it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that I was dating a guy that ended up going to treatment. And when I took, dropped him off at treatment for drugs and alcohol, I told the counselor of his, the laundry list of things she had to fix in him. So I could be happy. Right. Right. Because if she just fixed him, everything would be good. Everything would be, and, it would be good. It would be fine. We, we would, the relationship would be amazing. Exactly. Right. I had nothing right. to do with it. He had all the issues. And she just looked at me very, you know, without rolling her eyes. And she handed me a pamphlet for Al-Anon. And she said, go to Al-Anon. And my thought was, wait, I don't need to go anywhere. There's nothing wrong with me. You just need to fix him. And she just kept repeating, go to Al-Anon. And so uh -huh. because I was such a good caretaker and I wanted to be a dutiful girlfriend, I would go for him and I would learn how to understand him and help him and be a better girlfriend to him. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. You're going to, you're going you're gonna to make it work and you're going to do this for him and make it all flow together. And once he gets fixed yeah. and comes back and you do all this to fix him, he, it's going to be great. Exactly. But I quickly learned that I had a place in it. And that was my start of my recovery journey was in those rooms of Al-Anon. The first thing I heard was I didn't cause it because I always thought that if I was a better girlfriend, he wouldn't be so mad and he wouldn't use, right? And I thought I could control it, right? Can't, right, didn't yeah. cause it, can't control it, can't cure it, right? But I thought by dumping his cocaine down the toilet or emptying his bottles of booze in the, you know, in the sink that I could control his use. And of course, there's always more and it doesn't work. Right. And I quickly learned right. I wasn't going to cure him and I needed to cure me. I had things that I had no idea were not functioning in a relationship. So that was my start of recovery. And I went on to move on to a guy that was in recovery. And I thought okay. I found perfect mate, right? Because he'd been through his recovery. I was in my recovery. He was evolved. He understood. And we got married and we had two beautiful daughters and then he had knee surgery and was prescribed opioids and he relapsed. And wow. when the prescriptions ran out, he turned to heroin. He was uh, gambling, which isn't surprising because they say you grew up to marry your father, right? So here I was with another gambler. Right. right. Wow. Yeah. And so I was raising two children in a home with active addiction. And I relapsed because I didn't want to, I was in denial. I didn't want to change the lifestyle. I didn't want to have to do anything different. Like that would be a lot of work. So I just kind of relapsed. I was in denial of how bad it had gotten. I was willing to placate him, be the caretaker. And I just went back into all those roles. So we all can relapse. Yeah. Making sure that he was okay or what you thought was okay or, or not upset the apple cart, so to speak, and kind of keep it all, yeah. keep it all going and, you know, smooth. Thinking that yeah. may stop it or that may cure it or yeah, something, something will happen. Right. Yeah. It, it fixes it on its own if I just play along and go with everything the way it was happening. And, you know, a little caveat to this is we owned a business, a very successful business, and we made a lot of money. And I didn't trust the lifestyle if I left. Right. I didn't know what right. would happen. I got sucked into that too. Yeah. I mean, that's hard to let go too. I mean, you've got that security of a business, you've got the finances there and, and to all of a sudden say, I'm going to change this in such a dramatic way. I mean, it can be really overwhelming. It'd be really scary. Yeah. You talk about upsetting the apple cart. 
Right. I didn't upset that apple cart. Yeah. Yeah. But something happened. But yeah. something happened to said, okay, this isn't, this is, this isn't yeah. going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that, you know, just like an addict gets sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I knew I had to protect my daughters. In the home I grew up in, my mom stayed with my dad saying, I'm not going to divorce until the kids are out of the house, which she immediately did. And I mm-hmm. said, I'm not going to stick around putting up with the man's crap like my mom did for the kids. I'm going to show my kids that women, because I have two daughters, can be strong and effective on their own. They don't have to put up with the man's crap. And it was my job as a role model to my daughters to not let them see that. Right. So I made the decision to divorce him. Yeah, wow. while he was in active addiction. And I, I had the wherewithal at the time, at least, to send my kids to Al-Anon. And, well, it wasn't Al-Anon. It was Alatot and Alateen. Right. Because I, I knew that what was going to be so confusing for them as children was growing up in a home where one thing was happening and we were saying another thing. Right? It's so confusing for right. a child. Everything's great. Everything's good. There are no problems in our home. But yet they're watching things going, am I crazy? Right? So I right. knew that was important for them. Do you think like that early experience in Al-Anon in your earlier history helped set the stage for, for this to be able to to have the strength to say, okay, I kind of really know what I need to do. Absolutely. I knew it for two years before I did it. Right. You know, but it, it's that the contemplative stage, right. Before you can move into action. And finally, I just, I knew, I knew I had to do it and I did, and that was fine and all was good because I did what I had to do. And then he continued on his destructive path of addiction. I wasn't involved in it anymore, but I will say he did go on to bankrupt the company that we had. He put Mm -hmm. everything into, uh, I mean, we lost everything because I depended on that business as spousal maintenance, right? I didn't have to go to work. There's plenty of money for everybody. And his addictions cost him to bankrupt the business. And then he was indicted for mail wire fraud and money laundering. And he went to prison. Wow. So in in some ways, you lost all that, even though that was your fear. I mean, your fear did come true. You lost all that, that financial stability. But at the same time, it sounds like through that, something else happened. Something else started to change in you. Yep. Yep. So lost everything. Literally, I had, we had a home in Arizona. We had a home where our marital home in Minnesota, lost both houses, had to quit, get a job, go to work. I opened a business. I had to know. So let me, let me, a little caveat here. When I divorced him and I, with, first thing I do with the lawyer is divide up all your assets all the money we had in retirement, all my kids' college funds were paid for. He had gambled it all away. There was nothing left. And I had no idea because as a spouse, you don't think to watch your accounts when your husband's on it, you trust him. So by the time I went to do an accounting of all of our money, there was no money. Oh my gosh. That had to be absolutely devastating. Devastating. Yeah. But you know, when you're in that place I didn't have time to think about that. You know, I kept telling my girls, you know, we're not a reflection of your dad's mistakes. You know, we're survivors and thrivers. You know, we're going to get through this. We're not going to let your dad take us down with him. And I showed them this path that 
we don't have to succumb to what's happening here. We can make our own path. And I think that's what recovery is all about, right? You know, I mean, we have to recover from everything in life, whether it's divorce or job loss or addiction or being the spouse of an addict. We're all in recovery from something. And I'm teaching my kids, this is how you pick up and move on and not fall down. Right. Like getting that internal strength and really advocating for yourself, like getting that strength to advocate for yourself and, and protect yourself and to get through that. And even though your worst fear, I guess at the time, what you thought was your worst fear was survivable, like you made it through. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I'm just, I'm glad that somehow I had that inner strength because I know people fall apart, right? Like, you know, yeah. I, I get that, that it's a hard place to be, but somehow I didn't let my mind ever go there. You know, I'm a manifester and a believer in what you put out, you get back and you know, what you think about comes about. And I wasn't going to think about anything negative. I was only going to think about positive and where we could go from here and we will make this work. And that's what happens when you put that out there. It works. It's like really taking that energy and, and putting it in that direction and like looking at this is where I'm going. And sometimes I think in those moments of crisis that are really intense, we just have to move forward. We just have to go, this is where we're going. And, you know, there might not be time for all the, you know, the contemplation. Maybe that comes a little bit later to understand yourself and the impact on you and all that. That comes after that. But sometimes it's just about survival. Yeah. And just keep moving. And one of my, my favorite quotes is, Henry Ford saying, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. And right. I wasn't, I wasn't going to for a second think I couldn't, you know? So, so you kept going. And, and so as you, as you did this and, and it sounds like you leaned into Al-Anon and, and this, your own recovery, what was that process for you? What did you learn about yourself and what did you, how did you grow through that experience? Well, I think the biggest thing was well, Al-Anon and a lot of therapy too, right? I mean, right. any resource you can get to when you're going through that. You know, I had a great circuit of girlfriends and a lot of them were single. And so that support, you have to find that community of like-minded, same path people that you're on to help you through those journeys. And that's what my life became about was just being a strong woman, surrounding myself with other strong women, leading my girls by example, and knowing that if anything could be accomplished by somebody else, there's no reason I can't accomplish it too. And that's what my whole recovery has been about. It's about being an independent woman because I was brought up that you need a man. Right. So for you, it's kind of like you really said, you know what, I, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need that. I can do this. I can survive. I can. That's a lot of resiliency. Yeah. I've been told I'm pretty resilient. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's like, it's kind of that, that frame of thinking that manifests resiliency and, and manifests grit and manifests that ability for us to like overcome these really, really challenging situations. Yeah. Cause I believe it doesn't matter how many times you fall down. It's just about picking yourself up again and how many times you can get up because anything's right, yeah. possible. Yeah. I am right there with you on that. I, I really believe how we set our frame in our mind is going to dictate how we how we show up in the world and what we we ultimately manifest. So kind of going a little bit in a different direction. I mean, you you took all this knowledge and you put it into a book, Addiction Rescue, yeah. the No BS Guide to Recovery and just kind of I can sense like you already with that title that that fits your personality. There's no BS here. Let's just get right to the point and right to moving forward. Okay. 
So when my ex-husband went to prison, he got clean and sober before he went in because he knew he didn't want to kick heroin in prison, right? So he he went to treatment and got clean and sober. And that was about a year and a half before he actually ended up going into prison. And when he was going into prison, and you know, here's here's the thing about being in a relationship, whether it's a kid, a parent, whatever, with someone who's addicted, you have to learn to separate the person from the addiction, right? So mm-hmm. I am, as a family addiction coach, this is the first thing I teach them. You know, it's just like having kids, right? You love your kids, but they're behaving naughty, right? You don't love their behavior, but you love your kids. And it's the same way right. when you're in a relationship with an addict, right? You love the person, you don't love the behavior that they're exuding. So I never had a problem with my ex-husband, the person that he was. I had a problem with the addiction and the addictive behavior. So we've always maintained a friendship. We always, you know, I had to cut him out of my life for certain reasons, but um, I knew the good guy was always in there, right? So when he went to prison and he was clean and sober, I said to him, we have a story to tell and we can help other people. Because what people would always say to us, oh my gosh, you guys are still friendly. You know, you still maintain a good co-parenting situation. And I knew that we could help other people going through addiction. And if he could stay clean and sober, like because he had been clean and sober for 13 years or something previously, I said, we can help other people. So I said, write down your stories and I'm going to write a book. And so we did co-author the book. It's I wrote it, but it's his story. It's written from his perspective because he came out of prison, became an interventionist, mm-hmm. became a recovery coach. He dedicated his life to help others. He knew that that's how he could find his redemption. So I wanted to give him that book to give him credibility, to show that he knew what he was talking about. So we wrote this book together. Then when he started his practice as an interventionist and recovery coach, I became his administrative assistant because that's what I do. I take care of everybody, right? Right. So I was working in his business and I'm taking all the calls and I'm dealing with the loved ones and the family members and I'm talking them off a ledge because they're in panic mode. And I'm like, I've been here before. I can help these people. And I'm talking to them anyways. I really should be a certified family addictions coach. So I got certified as recovery coach and a family addictions coach so I could be a part of helping those families. And now I'm an interventionist also. So that's what we do. We um, are helping families that are dealing with alcohol, substance use disorder, process addictions. I will say that the majority of our business is alcohol and substance use because those are the lethal addictions and those are the ones that the families are seeking help. For for the most. So you guys came back together and did this. We're business partners. And your business partners, again, even after all of what your story was and what you said, Tell me a little bit about that because that's, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And it all comes down to what I said before. I don't dislike him. I think he's an awesome man and I think he can really help people and he's got a ton of potential. Problem is anytime you put addiction up next to potential, potential kicks the ass out of potential nine out of 10 times, right? Right, right. When they're clean and sober, you know, most of the addicts I know are the most amazing people. And so- I knew he had that in him. So yeah, we're, we're both in long-term relationships now. We, he doesn't even live in the same state anymore, but we still maintain a great relationship for the kids and we maintain a great relationship to help other families. And yeah, we came full circle and that's what really emulates to other families that this can be done. Right. Like you can really get there and being able to have this frame does that and being able to work through this stuff and, and have this sense of I think like what you're saying is, you know, I can see the creativity in him. I can see the, the, the goodness in him. 
I can see it beyond the addiction itself allows me to take that chance. Yeah. 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 And I hope that I have my, you know, my guard up in, in a way. I hope that if I see those signs again, that I, you know, well, it'll be very obvious. I can step away. I don't want to be in a place where, you know, relapse is a part of addiction, right? I mean, it's, yeah. You, if, you, if you don't, I don't mean to say you should expect it, but if you don't understand that that might happen and then you're, you faced with it and your expectations are shattered because you thought this person would never, never relapse. I mean, that, that's just kind of being unrealistic because every time there's a relapse, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to understand what the triggers were, what happened, get out of it faster, get back on your road recovery faster. My point is, is that I don't want to say I trust that he'll never relapse because I think that if you have that expectation, you're setting yourself up. But I hope I would see the signs. I hope that I could help him get through that faster, quicker, uh, more effectively. And as long as I know that that's a chance and I set the stage that I can't get hurt if that happens, um, he can't take me down again financially if that happens, and just have boundaries with that, that it's, it's, it's all good. So tell me a little bit about that process of of developing that because I would imagine you're you're coming together you see this possibility you bring the the, the relationship back together but with this knowledge of you know these boundaries how how did you start to de- develop that and how did you start to put that together because I think a lot of people out there when they're they have a loved one who's struggling with addiction that's a really hard thing to do right that's hard to set those kind of boundaries and have, I, I want to call it like loving detachment, mm-hmm. you know, if yeah. that's the right word for it. But like, that's, that's a process in and of itself, because we can get sucked in so fast. And then not 100%. even realize we're sucked in. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really focus on when I work with families is, is the boundaries. Because for one, their boundaries are getting all walked over. And they have these expectations that their boundaries aren't going to get walked over. And then they just have resentments because expectations are just premeditated or resentments are premeditated expectations, right? So you got to be realistic about your expectations. So boundaries are so important. And if you're going to set them, you have to, before you can set them, you have to know that it's a boundary you can keep. And having boundaries is the quickest way to get your loved one to change their behavior. Because if you don't change your behavior and set those boundaries, they have no need to change. Because addicts rely on two things, being comfortable and being out of pain, right? That's why they use, they're all in pain, right? There's some kind of trauma, there's some kind of hole, there's some kind of something that they're using to cover up some kind of pain, right? And what we do as loved ones is we keep them comfortable by not placing those boundaries And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to avoid pain and stay comfortable. So as soon as we set those boundaries, and it's hard because we don't want to have to make our loved one uncomfortable. But as soon as you set those boundaries and you're willing to change, it's going to steer them in a way that they have to change. And that's the biggest example you can set for someone that has an addiction is to get into your own recovery, set those boundaries, take care of yourself. And when you step out of the role of your maladaptive role, it's going to give your loved one incentive and motivation, now they have to step out of their role. So that's what I was saying. You want to steal your loved one into recovery? Start getting your recovery. Start setting up those boundaries. Start making them a little bit uncomfortable, no matter how uncomfortable it is for you to do that. Right. And I, I think that, you know, when you're talking about that, it makes me think about how, 
you know, in a relationship that doesn't have addiction, our natural tendency is to, if we're in a, re- a loving relationship, is to help our partner feel comfortable and feel safe. But in the context of an addiction, that gets warped somehow where we're providing, I don't know, comfort to the addiction per se and, and not the person. And, and it gets, it becomes maladaptive, if that makes sense. And it actually becomes more harmful. And being able to detach that and being able to see it from that perspective and not bringing comfort to this addictive process. Right. They have to go through that. They have to find their way. They do. We can't do it for them as much as we think we're helping. We're not helping. We're prolonging, you know, and making them sicker. And and it's making us sicker. Yeah. When we do that. That's how I work with families. That's exactly, I mean, that's like the nail on the head right there. Right. It's being able to see that. And, and like, I, I think the part of like being loving and being caring and like, like you said earlier, you know, you saw this goodness in him, right? You could still connect to that love. And then you could, you could separate out that there's also this addiction going on and I have to protect myself from that. But not yeah. the, I don't have to strip the love from that. But then I, I also imagine there's a lot of sadness there, too, when you start to set those boundaries, especially if the person's still in their active addiction and you're watching them self-destruct and you care about them and you're watching them, you know, even to the point where they could die or do die. Yeah, it, you're with. absolutely right. Yeah. And the hardest thing I work with, the, the, the most stressful situations are when it's your kid, when it's your child. Yeah, that is the absolute hardest. It's heartbreaking. It is. It is. You know, and, you know, as parents, we want to take care of our kids. We want to make them safe. We want to keep them comfortable. Um, you talk about having to set boundaries that make you so uncomfortable. Yeah. When you're dealing with a child, it's the worst. Yeah. And, and to be, you know, I always think like to be able to love them at the same time, it can feel like, oh my gosh, you're betraying them. Um, mm. and, and knowing where those boundaries are and, what boundaries are comfortable for you to set and not set and making those choices. Cause I think everybody has to ultimately when they're setting the boundaries with someone who they, they love and they're in that addiction, they have to make those choices. And I think everybody's a little different. They have to make that yeah. choice on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, when you say that about the betrayal, huge with interventions, you know, because yeah. here the loved one that's addicted is thinking they're um, in a situation where they're comfortable and the parents are comfortable and they got everybody controlled and they're, you know, manipulating all the roles of everybody. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's an intervention. They feel like it's such a betrayal. Right. Yeah. 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 And then what, when, when that intervention happens and you're starting to like, or like maybe a parent starting to say, look, you have an out of control problem that we have to deal with, or I can't, I can't be there for you in that way anymore. Right. What starts to happen? What, what does the addict do? And the person who's struggling with addiction, what do they do? And what do the, the family members do? Well, so you're talking about in an intervention and what happens afterwards. Yeah. 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 So, and I will say that a lot of the interventions we do is for children. Right. Uh, uh, Yeah. The, the last two, I was, I'm just thinking about the last two. Yeah. We're, we're kids. So, so what happens in the intervention, first of all, most often the person that you're intervening on does go to treatment. I'm right. I'm really happy to say, and if they say no, 
okay, so if if they go to treatment, obviously everybody's happy, but everybody has to get into recovery, right? Not just the family. Because here's the thing. If you send your loved one off to treatment, they're going to learn a new way of behaving. They're going to le- learn a new language, let's say. Okay, now they're gone off and they're learning French. They're learning how to do it. They're immersed in a new language and they're going to come home and they're going to speak French now. But the family's still speaking English. How long is it going to take till they're speaking English again? Right. Right. So right. the family has an opportunity in those 30 or 45 days or whatever it is to get into their recovery so they know when their loved one comes home how they can actually be of help to them and they can help, help the success of their recovery and them staying in sobriety by what they can do differently. So that's what the family has to take on. So everybody needs to go into recovery. And, and I make that a real, very important point whenever we deal with interventions is everybody's going into recovery. And that's important for the addict that you're intervening on to know too. It's like, hey, they're not calling you out because you're the only one that's messed up here. The whole family's messed up. Everybody's taking on maladaptive roles. Everybody's getting into recovery. You just get the opportunity to go to a beautiful resort-like place to do it. So, you know, right. we got to <laughs> make it appealing. And I always say, you know, any of us would love to go away for 30 days and uh, focus on ourselves and get away from the headaches of life and just really, you know, take a look at what's really going on. So it's a great opportunity. I mean, that's obviously how you present it. However, if they say no, that they're not going for whatever reason, we do a uh, bottoms line letter, right? And I work with the family to come up with their bottom lines. And that can be, it's different for every family. You know, it's like, can't live in our home anymore. You, we won't take your calls unless it's to go to treatment. You're no longer going to be employed at the family business. You can no longer have the car that I provide for you. Whatever their bottom lines are, right? That they, right. That, that letter is read. And I will say that three out of four times, if they can stick to those boundaries and those bottom lines, it does turn the addict around to, to accept the treatment. So the success rate of an intervention from our perspective is pretty high. So uh, what, what I hear you saying is a couple of things like, so also you're focusing on the whole system, right? The whole system has to change because if this person goes away and gets treatment and comes back to this house that's all dysfunctional, they're just going to go back to their old ways of being and it's all just going to recycle again, go over and over that if you have a loved one who's struggling with addiction, you, you got to do work too. You got to be, you got to learn to show up differently to this relationship. If you're going to have any impact on the relationship for yourself and for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I just, I'm a blogger also for psychology today. And I just did this blog on why do I have to be in recovery if I'm not a substance use person? Right. So, and people think that, right? They're like, this isn't my problem. Why do I got to go do some work? And the way I look at it is it's just personal development. It's, it's personal growth. It's like, when would you ever want to stop evolving and growing and being better in life and relationships? So this is just a platform for you to just be better, a better person. It's just personal growth. Right? Do you think sometimes when you, when you say that, cause you know, I, I see that resistance to a lot and do you think it's like because the addict is like the identified client, the identified problem, the problem child, the problem spouse, the problem that they, they get all the attention and almost if the person who's not doing that, they and they have to put some self-reflection, they have to see their own stuff that they bring. I, I don't know. Like there's there's like a resistance to that. It's easier to see the other person as the problem. And if they just fix themselves, then it's fine. And then. You know, it can be difficult when we have to turn that around and look at ourselves. 
Yeah, no, it's exactly what I did when somebody said go to Al-Anon, right? It's like, I don't have anything to look at. I don't have the problem. But there's there's six roles that have, this is years old, right? There's six roles around a family of, ad- of addiction, right? One being the addict is one role. And then, then we all take these maladaptive roles, the hero, the mascot, the, you know, there's these roles. And I actually, and I'll give you the link too, because I have a quiz so you can assess your role in the family of an addict, you can see where you play out with, with those roles. And we all have to fix those maladaptive roles. And I don't know where I was going with this, but you had said something that triggered something that I've now lost because I started talking about the maladaptive roles. But yes, we all have to take a look at, and, and there is resistance to it because people don't want to look at it. Oh, and that's what I was going to say. So when you're, some of these roles are like, you know, when that addict goes and gets help, they're all thrown out of whack because no longer can they be the hero and try to fix everything, you know? And the, the one that's the, you know, the more, the enabling one, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Because I don't have anybody to take care of anymore. And I don't, I don't have to look at myself because I don't take care of myself. So you're right. right. Everybody has to look at themselves. And that's where I was going with that and learn your role and why you do it and your fear of stepping outside of that role so that you can do something different and look at yourself and your behaviors. And it sounds like for you kind of coming full circle, it's like you had to do that in your own journey to be able to create this new paradigm for yourselves and your relationship with your ex-husband, you know, like, and, and him and, and being able to, to do that, you had to do your own work to be able to set your boundaries. Yeah. And you know, what's amazing about that. When I think about what you said, and I don't think about this very much is I'm so good at calling him out now, right? It, like I used to need to placate, didn't want to rock the boat. And I, you know, maybe it's cause we're divorced. So I don't feel like I have anything to lose, but it's just really good practice just being able to call him out and where I wasn't in that relationship before. So it's just such a much healthier way to be in a relationship. Right. And I think you said, you know, it just remind me, keep going back. But like what you said earlier at the very beginning, it's like, it, you know, for your daughters, you wanted everything to be real, like what we see and what we say and what we experience is, is reality instead of living in this kind of weird, when you're trying to keep an addict, you're stuck in that it's it's nothing's real, everybody, everything is like uh, twisted kind of, because you're trying to manage everybody's emotions, or you're trying to keep the addict from doing whatever they're going to do. Right. And then it's not real. And then when you kind of get in recovery, you can just speak truth to what it is. It's right there. This is my experience. You know, take it or leave it. It's such a relief. You know, it really is so much easier to live that way. Yeah. Absolutely. For years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we all have our maladaptive fears and, and, you know, like if I speak the truth, the, the, everything's going to fall apart. And maybe in the beginning, like you said, it, it, it will, I mean, it did for you in a way, if it did fall, fall apart, but you were able to find your way to make it different and make it better and, and pull on your resiliency. And now look at where you are and, and, and the place you are in life. It's just a much better place. Much better place. Much better place. Yeah. I'll give up that maladaptive role any day for this one. And, you know, yeah. it's interesting I say that because my ex-husband always says, you know, the way he was trying to feel using drugs and alcohol is the way he feels today sober. Like he could never get there with drugs and alcohol, but he always thought that was the answer to feeling good. And um, right. and, it, and I, I have to say it's the same with me, right? I mean, just living transparent and being authentic to yourself, telling your truth, not just saying what you think you need to say to make somebody happy or not rock the boat. It's just such a much better way to live. It's a better way to live and, and you can get there. It can feel impossible, but with trial and error and practice and resiliency and 
effort you 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 can make it so all right well we're running on our running on our time so i usually like to ask like one question before we wrap up and it's like anybody out there struggling maybe there's a there's someone out there who was in a similar situation to where you were right and and they're in a relationship they don't know what to do what would you what would you want to tell them if you could tell them one thing what would you want to say to them there's always hope there's always hope and the best thing to do is to stop nagging, begging, pleading, bargaining, threatening, all those things. Cause it, it doesn't work. So love them, up. Love them up. Awesome. Awesome. Where can people find out more information about you if they want to know more? Okay. So Dana at DanaGolden.com. If you want to email me, my website is DanaGolden.com. If you want to take my quiz and find out what maladaptive role you've taken on in your relationship, it's danagolden.com backslash quiz. Awesome. I will put all those links in the show notes as well. And what about your book? If people want to, if my uh, book, yeah. Addiction Rescue, the No BS Guide to Recovery, wherever books are sold. It's a great comprehensive guide to everything addiction and recovery from figuring out if you have an addiction to getting and staying in recovery. There's a five action step process uh, to healing body, mind, and spirit. It's just, it, it's got every tool and trick in there. There's also a free downloadable workbook that goes along with it, a companion workbook that you can find on my website at danagolden.com and addiction rescues, wherever books are sold, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, online, whatever resource you use to buy your books. And you know, the other thing I want to throw out Dwayne is I want to throw out my ex-husband's website and it's the life recovery coach.com because awesome. I'm on there as well as the family addiction coach. And he's got a great story and he does great work. And uh, just to give him a plug too, it's fun to read about him because you can, everything I've told you from his perspective and where he comes from. So for anybody awesome. that might and Maybe he'd want to come on to the podcast and share his story. Oh, he absolutely would love to. That I'll would be that awesome. You, yeah, for sure. Oh, that'd be great. Dana, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind and, and just sharing your wisdom, your experience and your story. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And anytime you want me back, I'm here for you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you so much for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can find all the links to Dana's book and to her quiz about family roles. So go check that out at theaddictedmind.com. You can find it all there. If you enjoyed this episode, write a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. Or share the episode with a friend. Thank you so much. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 
drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.